This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. This week, reporter Joe Otterson talks with executive producers John Hurwitz, Hayden Schlossberg, and Josh Heald of YouTube's Cobra Kai. Later, critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke discuss Netflix's Tuca and Birdie and CBS's The Red Line. Then, Joe will talk with Ben Edlin, creator of The Tick. Stay tuned. All right, hello. This is uh, Joe Otterson, TV reporter with Variety, and I am here with uh, the creators of Cobra Kai. We have Mr. John Hurwitz, Mr. Hayden Schlossberg, and Josh Heal. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah thank you. So, um, I, I love this show because of all the reboot revival stuff we've seen lately, this is the one that I think has done it right. Because, I mean, you take what was done before, you honor it, you pay tribute to it. There's obviously a lot of references to the, the Karate Kid films in this show, but then you, you have improved upon it and really built something wholly unique. And I'm just wondering, um, how do you kind of, con- in season one, that was really the case, and I'm wondering, how do you then continue that energy going into season two? I think for us, it's just continuing the story. The three of us have been huge Karate Kid fans forever. This project came together in a way different than a lot of Hollywood, Hollywood reboots or uh, continuations happened. This was just... The three of us had this idea. We sought the rights out. We we chased it down, and uh, we had this clear vision from the beginning. And uh, season two is just a continuation of what's going on in season one. It's the same exact uh, game plan in terms of our approach. So you'll see, uh, you know, some flashbacks. You'll see some allusions to the past. But we're telling a, a, a modern story, a modern Karate Kid story, which you know covers bullying and uh, mentorship and all sorts of uh, different themes. You guys, anything you care to add? Just like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we... How is it different than season one? It's not different from season one from a tonal standpoint. If you liked the way that we approached season one, it's more of the same in terms of the earnestness and the the weight with which we treat this rivalry that's now 30-something years old that on paper would appear to be silly. It's a high school fight that has blossomed into this poisonous rage that has infected the next generation in the valley it's different in that there's a lot more characters you care about entering season two in season one you knew johnny and daniel and you were learning to love miguel and get invested in sam's story and all the friends and all their journeys season two you care about everybody right away because we left so much hanging in the balance at the end of that season that there's so much more to be dramatically invested in right away and there's so many more Storylines to start paying off from the beginning, mm-hmm. and then um, yeah, you, you talked, you just touched on this, but um, this idea of this kind of like you know, it, it, it seems kind of silly, like on the outside, right? Because ultimately, you're talking about you know the owner of a strip mall <laughs> karate studio engaging in this very intense feud with the owner of you know car dealerships. You know, so it's like so that doesn't really seem like there'd be very high stakes, but the show is like really dramatic. And again, there's a lot of emotion in this show. So it's like, how do you get people to emotionally invest in something that seems like it has pretty low stakes in the grand scheme of things? I, I think the the secret is to make sure that it's working on all different levels. It has to, at its core, work as a story for an audience that hasn't seen The Karate Kid. And if you actually construct a story, you know, without relying on this, um, you know, this original series from 30 years ago it forces you to you know just write things that that you care about inherently and then what you know on top of that you have these callbacks that could make something you know seemingly serious kind of funny at the same time uh you know at times the show is uh you know almost 
you know, for us, it's hysterical in how serious we're taking certain things. Um, but you understand for the characters, the characters never there, – there isn't this like uh, winking moment where they break and you realize, okay, this is just a silly thing. We, we treat the characters in the world so seriously that it feels like, okay, this is another Karate Kid movie. And, and we remember for – if you look at Karate Kid 2 and Karate Kid 3, there's a lot of ridiculous you know, things even in the original. But you just – you go into a movie and you go into a story wanting to believe – and if the audience goes in with that attitude, you know, we take the time to make it feel as true to the originals as possible. Mm -hmm. And obviously then the, the, the core of the show is um, the performances of Mr. Ralph Macho and William Zabka. And, um, you know, and they both have just been, I think, phenomenal on this show. And so, um, and again, like I said before, what I like about it is they, they haven't just kind of, they're not just rehashing what they did 30 years ago. This is something very new and very unique. And so how do you think they have built on their character, their previous iterations of these characters and evolved them into something new? Well, that was something that was very important to both of these guys when we approached them in the first season for the show, kind of, you know, showing up from out of nowhere and saying, surprise, we have the rights to Karate Kid, uh, let's do this. We knew that you can only trade on that movie's dynamic for so long in terms of the the earnest kid who's going to learn karate from the mentor and defeat all the villains and become the champion. We've seen that story before. So to start telling that story again from Daniel's perspective just didn't make sense, didn't excite us. So firstly, flipping the script and seeing Johnny as this earnest underdog who's you know one man against the world and he's been treated poorly and he's had tragedy in his life and everything you can do to invest an audience in his side and then also to reintroduce Daniel in a way that he seemingly has everything on paper but he's missing Mr. Miyagi you know what made Daniel the complete picture back in the day was he was this cocky kid who met Mr. Miyagi who taught him balance and all the Miyagi-Do tenets that made him be able to grow into a full, complete adult, capable of having a business, you know, a strong family, everything else. But what happens when Cobra Kai gets reintroduced into that, you know, waterway? Um, does that cocky kid come back out? Does he start to feel a little unbalanced? And those are both things that both of those guys could grasp onto as being very different and very true to the, the continuation 30-something years later. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously it was set up at the end of season one that uh, Cobra Kai and Miyagi-Do are going to now have, you know, uh, Daniel is going to reestablish Miyagi-Do and there's going to be now a much stronger feud between the two uh, schools. And so obviously without giving anything away, can you kind of tell us how that feud is going to play out in uh, season two? Well, you know, these two characters have such a long history and uh, over the course of the first season, obviously we uh, gave them, we gave them students. So, uh, Season two, you really get to see the rivalry bleed down to this younger generation in a much bigger way. You know, we always said when we first pitched the show from the very beginning, the intention was for the first season to almost be a setup for setup for season two, which would be dojo versus dojo. Uh, you know, a fight for the soul of the valley, and uh, that's really what season two is all about. You know, we have it's funny because we're all kind of laughing here, and that's yeah. we're taking like this, but that, this that's, whole, the, that's, fun the, that's, that's the, the fun of the show. I think that's the yeah. fun of yes. the show is yeah. that you know, I mean, it's like Star Wars. Star Wars. I mean, let's just face it. There's it's a lightsabers, saga. Yeah. but it's also you know, it's also fake. You know, there's puppets. There's it's it's you know. It's a fantasy world. You know, we hate to break it to you all. You know? <laughs> and and it's something that. But we love Star Wars. We love you know 
Karate Kid, and right. we just treat it with that good and evil, like this is you know some other Bible, you know, like that. But there's that not as much you know disbelief that you have to suspend here. the The only thing you have to buy into is that Karate in the Valley is like football in Texas. If that's you, that's the one conceit of the you, show. Yeah, if you understand that and you accept that on face value, then everything really the stakes make complete sense. I mean, right. these are guys. This is that was the big game back in the day. That was yeah. life, the peak. Peak life, nothing ever yeah. gets better than that. But it's really about this battle of these philosophies that yeah. you know uh, these ki- that's playing out in the lives of these kids. And you know, with uh, season two, uh, the big bad wolf is back in Sensei Crease. So uh, if we thought it was you know rough enough when it's Johnny versus Daniel, suddenly Sensei Crease is there to mix things up and. Uh, it takes things to a whole new level. Well, the fun is that Daniel had a relationship with Crease beyond what, what Johnny knows. I mean, Johnny and Crease broke up in that parking lot uh, after an attempted murder. And, uh, and then, but Daniel continued to deal with Crease for another year at least. <laughs> so there's, uh, there's just interesting dynamics to play with, uh, with both sides. Yeah, I mean, we got we got to talk about Kreese. So, I mean, Martin Cove, obviously, you see in the in the end of season one, he comes back. You know, it's Kreese. He's back in the Cobra Kai dojo, and I, I just I love the idea that Kreese has just been out there in the wilderness for years, just waiting for his opportunity to burst back out of the San Fernando Valley. I think, yeah. scene. <laughs> I think Marty has been Marty Marty Cove. Yeah, but, you know, Martin Cove is uh, such a presence in that yeah. uh, in, in the Karate Kid franchise. I mean, mm-hmm. he brings there's a certain like gravitas that he brings. Uh, with his voice and he's just so commanding and his his presence loomed over season one in certain ways and now that he's here in season two uh, you know he Cobra Kai was him this was everything to him this was his world and he loved Cobra Kai and he loved Johnny Lawrence and it was all gone and you know without that you know, who knows what's happened in his life, and uh, you'll find out when you're watching season two. Yeah, but there's something very foreboding about literally like the wind blows in Sensei Crease, uh, you know, right at the the right moment and the wrong moment for uh, for Cobra Kai and for Johnny Lawrence at that time. And it was just so much fun to shoot that moment because we knew we wanted to withhold exactly what we were going to be telling about Sensei Crease in the second season. So we took just painstaking efforts to decide what that silhouette looked like, you know, what he's wearing uh, and everything. And then Marty just naturally brings, like John said, this gravitas, this very commanding presence that the first time he did his uh, his lines, I think we were just rehearsing. I don't even think the camera was on. The whole crew just, you know, couldn't believe what, what had just happened. And and it was the last day of production, and they had seen plenty of Karate Kid-related uh, material up until then. It must be like... What what it's like when James Earl Jones comes in to do the voice of Vader, <laughs> yeah. you know, for the sound department. You know, it's just one of those crazy, crazy, um, you know, famous, you know, Hollywood villains. But Marty loves playing the role so much, and you, you could feel tell. it. You yeah, could you just so you could tell. so tell. Yeah, and uh, it's something that when he comes to set, he addresses us as Sensei Chris. We call him Sensei. It's I funny mean, because a lot of actors when they're so identified for a character, you know, it's it's difficult for them. And right. you know, I just get the sense with Marty, from the very beginning, he was, you know, just leaned into the whole crease villain, bad guy thing and he was loving it. And uh so it, it was fun, you know, just to see him be able to like just you know put on the gi again and and get into character yeah i mean as much as we have thought about sensei crease over the years marty cove has thought about sensei crease over the years and he has notebooks filled with 
you know, ideas. And some, and some of those ideas actually have a lot of overlap with uh, things that we consider. And some of them are a completely different type of fan fiction, uh, you know, <laughs> being told from the person who plays the character. So it's elevated fan fiction. But, uh, and, but so is what we do, by the way. We're, we're, we're making fan fiction. Uh, so it's an interesting conversation because it's, it's not a character that he's like, oh, yeah, right, I did that. No, he remembers everything that happened and everything that he brought to the role originally in terms of invented backstory and everything else. And it just gives, you know, it's, it's fun to work with an actor who cares so much about that character, as do Ralph and Billy. I mean, these guys really, to, to ask actors to put on the mask of the role that made people shout things at them on streets for 35 years could be something of like, oh, do I really want to take that on? But these guys, you know, all just came in completely headlong into it. So basically what you guys are telling me is that Marty Cove is Sensei Kreese and Sensei Kreese is Marty Cove. Completely. Uh, yes. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty he, much. He, yeah. it, it is funny. During a lot of like the publicity and press, he'll just be in character. And a lot of times <laughs> with actors, like like usually marketing and, and publicity, like they want you to be in character. They yeah. want, you know, they would love it for Hemsworth to come out like as Thor in everything. Yeah. Um, and the actor is always like trying to distance themselves and do, but like you know, Marty's just like without even asking is you know smoking a cigar to the camera, <laughs> telling you if you if you don't sign on to YouTube Premium, you will die. You know? <laughs> but he does understand that it's funny. I think that we should make it clear that like he yeah, actually like crazy. it's yeah. funny because he really does yes. understand the 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 ridiculousness yes, of he, it all. Well, we'll, pitch him, we'll pitch him things sometimes, and he'll look us straight in the face and say, "You guys are twisted." Like, just something like, <laughs> like we're even taking Crease to a place that he never imagined uh, and it's fun it's fun to have those conversations with a, a guy who's so invested in that character but so I would assume that it really wasn't hard to convince him to come back for the show no. we, have to, we, we have, have to be back sooner we have we to have convince to, him uh, yeah. to not come back until episode 10 I, I so we, say it was probably <laughs> the toughest thing in his career to just stand on the sidelines while we were shooting an entire season of Cobra right. Kai I mean this for him he's like I founded Cobra Kai. I'm Sensei Kreese. And how are you not using that? Um, and then, but like, I, he, gave, I gave Marty my phone number. So, uh, you know, Marty would call me and say, you know, we'd be in the middle of production. He'd say, look, you're up to episode six. How about I come in now? And, and you know, we, and it, was, it was killing him the, the thing that was not to be able to announce to the world yes. that, don't worry, Kreese will be back. It, but, was hard, yeah. it was hard because every day when he walks down the street, people view him as Sensei Kreese. Right. So he had to just lie to people for a year. And this, he's an honest man. Like, so it was hard for him to just have to flat out lie. And, and we lie lied to people, lie. too. If they asked yeah. us if Kreese was back, we said no. We, we just knew that the, the impact of the surprise was worth it. We love nothing more than when we can go to the cinema or to watch a show and be truly surprised. Like really? that first season of Game of Thrones. Like... People were truly surprised. You know, we try to withhold certain moments on this show from everybody uh, just so, you know, it doesn't get out there. Because if you don't see it in the trailer and you don't see it talked about and actors are literally telling you, like, you know, nope, they didn't ask me. I don't know. Then you have such value in catching an audience, you know, wide eyed and surprised. And that's, you know, something with that that we knew would have just great value for the audience. All right, so I promise I'm not going to ask any more Marty Cove questions. Like we could go, we could be here for a while. Like, sure, all sure. my Sensei Kreese questions. So I'll, I'll move on quickly. So um, one thing that's great too is though, yeah, there's there's a lot of young characters on the show. Like you were saying, people are now invested in the story. These young characters, like Daniel's daughter, like Miguel. But so also there's um, some really good new characters this season too. So if you could just like if, again, without giving away too much, like what who are some of the new characters we can expect to see this season? Um, well. There's one actor that we fell in love with when we watched the the movie I Tanya, and it's Paul Walter Hauser. 
Um, he was so funny in that, um, but he's also able to be dramatic in movies like Black Klansman. Mm-hmm. And we had this idea for a character in our first season um, that was basically you know, the adult in, in the dojo. I mean, it's not only kids who learn karate. I mean, you'll, you'll see, you know, you know, guys in their twenties and thirties that are still at the dojos. And we love the idea of an adult that mixes in with the kids. Um, and is just like hardcore into Cobra Kai. And that was just a storyline that we didn't, um, we weren't able to fit in the first season. And that like, as soon as like we had the green light for a second season, we were like, okay, we know we want, uh, to get, um, Paul to play this character. So that's just one uh, of the fun new characters. And we we also really wanted there to be a true rival for Samantha. Uh, In season one, you're very invested in Miguel versus Robbie, and that rivalry continues here. But, you know, Samantha LaRusso is going to be putting that gi back on in season two, and we wanted there to be a true rival to her. So we have Peyton List came in as Tori with a Y. an allusion to Ali with an eye from the original Karate Kid. And uh, she's a, a, a troubled youth uh, and uh, has a little bit, uh, unlike a lot of other uh, Cobra Kai students, she had a little bit of kickboxing in her past and has uh, some experience. So she enters the dojo a little bit of a badass. It's kind of like Karate's bad girl. You know, like like if it, the, the, the you know, young female teenage version of uh, Mike Barnes. You know, we wanted to have that, like, intimidating presence for, for Sam to deal with. Mm-hmm. And then um, a great thing, too, is uh, it's it's a frequent joke, you know, that William Zepka's character, you know, is pretty out of touch. He basically stopped paying attention to everything, you know, once the 80s was over. And so I'm just curious, um, in your experience, does William Zapka actually know how to use a computer and, like, a cell phone and stuff? <laughs> he's beyond that... tech savvy. Yeah, he's Billy... Not, Billy... He's, not just, he's not method acting, then. He's yeah. actually, like... Billy can do things... He can, like, film edit on his phone. He's, he's very, <laughs> very tech savvy. He, you know, I, I can't figure out how to use Instagram sometimes, and Billy's, you know, he posted you know seven things uh but yeah he can he'll do things sometimes when we're filming a fight where he'll film the monitor footage and be able to present us with just a silly cut that he cuts to some crazy music that doesn't belong in the scene uh just for our eyes and uh and it's fairly professional and he's done it on literally on an iphone and he'll do it quickly too the thing about billy is you know we haven't seen him on screen a whole lot over the last bunch of years but he was behind the camera he's a filmmaker himself and he knows every job on a set and knows how to do a, a wide array of things. So, yeah, you know, one day we'll be shooting a fight scene with him and he gets these, like, you know, emails from uh, or texts from, uh, you know, a PA on set who was filming the monitor and he will have the scene cut together the next day <laughs> with awesome music and it feels legit. Yeah, I mean, every now and then we've shown it to uh, pieces of that kind of thing to our editors just to say, hey, I know you're going to do this, but, you know, we kind of like this part of this. And they're like, where'd you get that? And uh, it, it's fun because, yeah, I mean, Billy's directed, he's edited. he. But it's fun, writing, it's fun writing the character who, you know, is completely computer illiterate. And I think, you know, for us, we just love the idea of this guy trapped in the 80s who still views computers and technology as this this. Thing for nerds. It's nerds. Yeah, it's right. nerds do that, you know? And he, it's not like he knows computers exist. He's heard of the internet, but it's like, why do I need an internet when I got a car and I could go to the store? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's weak to him to have to push a bunch of buttons. Mm-hmm. And then finally, gentlemen, uh, my most important question for you personally, are you Team Cobra Kai or Team Miyagi-Do? Oh, I mean, I'm wearing a Cobra Kai jacket right now. I've been, I've been Cobra Kai, I think, since... Uh, 
since I started to understand that just how cool a teenage karate gang could be, um, <laughs> you know, I, I uh, or, you know, as a child, you all fall in love with the Daniel LaRusso story. But, you know, we all come from the world of comedy. And as you watch this movie over and over and over again, you start to realize there's something really ridiculous happening here at the center of this thing. But it's uh, these characters that you're so scared of. They're just a group of teenagers who know karate. And uh, it's uh, it's it's hilarious to us. And we've leaned into it and, and you know, made well, a Well, the crazy thing is we've changed, you know, the narrative of the movie. And now you look online and there's so many people who are Team Cobra Kai, which that was never even an option back in the day. It's kind of scary. <laughs> we live in times. The, the best are the people the who... There are so many people who, who say, oh, I knew from the beginning that Daniel was the bad guy. I've known since day one. No one watched The Karate Kid ever the first time and thought that Daniel was the bad guy. I feel, I feel like making this show has made me more Miyagi-Do because I feel responsible now. For <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely... Uh, we're all Team Cobra Kai. I mean, we know who pays the bills around here. But, the, uh, <laughs> but, but I've, I found myself becoming more Miyagi-Do just because there's more goodness happening over there at times and, and there's so much badassness, you know, and the word badass <laughs> happening on the Cobra Kai side that every now and then it's nice to... To have that remembrance of, you know, what the, the goosebumps yeah. sometimes come more naturally from the Miyagi Do side. Mm-hmm. But uh, but the the excitement and the and the fist, you know, pumping and the high fives happen more from the Cobra Kai side. So it's a nice balance to have. I'd say in real life, all of us are probably very Miyagi Do, but none of us like doing chores. So no. you, know, <laughs> you just go to Cobra Kai by default at that yeah. point. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining me. And lest we forget, Cobra Kai never dies. It does never not die. <laughs> it always lives. Yep. April 28th, miniseries The Red Line debuts on CBS. Animated comedy Tuca and Birdie premieres May 3rd on Netflix. Caroline Framke and Daniel D'Addario discussed both shows. No easy transitions this week as we talk about one show that is very light and one that's very heavy, but we'll deal with the fun stuff first. Netflix's new series Tuca and Birdie follows two birds that are friends. It shares creative DNA with Bojack Horseman, also a Netflix animated series. And I'm curious, not having seen it, if it shares uh, that show's kind of grim vision of the world or if it's a bit lighter. Caroline, you're reviewing it for us. Uh, What did you make of Tuca and Birdie? Um, I've been really excited for this one for a while uh, as a big fan of Lisa Hanawalt, who started as the production designer on BoJack and has been producing it since the beginning if you're not sure exactly what her part in it was. She's basically responsible for the look of BoJack, the feel of it, all the background gags, the animal people are things she had been drawing beforehand and she and BoJack creator Raphael Bob Waxberg came together uh, based on the strength of her designs in the first place. So she's really responsible for so much of what does make BoJack great and so I was really excited that she got her own show to kind of explore her own creative vision. Uh, it is interesting that you said that this is something lighter because at first glance, it sure seems that way. Um, and a lot of it is. It's really wacky. The first episode throws you right into this world of Birdtown. Uh, <laughs> and it's caterpillar subways and it's plant people. Uh, and the the two main birds in question are Tuca, a toucan played by Tiffany Haddish, and Birdie, I think a sparrow or a robin. I'm really sorry. I don't know birds. Uh, and she is played by Ali Wong. And there's sort of a typical mismatched friendship where Birdie's the 
slightly more reserved one who has her life more together and Tuka's the uh, casual partier who uh, brings Birdie out of her shell and everything. It picks up with they used to be roommates. Birdie gets a serious boyfriend who's played by Stephen Yun, who I don't think has been really pushed forward more. Oh, in yeah, I didn't realize he was on this. That's <laughs> terrific. He's really good. Uh, so they move in together and then they both have to figure out how to navigate their friendship in the world and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I was not surprised given uh, Hannah Walt in the Bojack DNA, like you said, that it does get into some more serious things in a way that feels really organic. And I will say that I think Bojack is overall much grimmer uh, and existentially dready. But there are things that Tuka and Birdie touches on that, like, let's see like sexual harassment and anxiety and Tuka is sober and figuring out what that means with her whole personality. And I, for lack of a better way to explain this, and I will find a better way to explain this in my review, <laughs> it feels really uh, made by women in a way that I haven't seen in many adult animation uh, before. It's these are two 30 year old women. They're birds, but they're women dealing with 30 year old women things in a way that feels really just natural and it's so intrinsic to what makes the show it's not they don't have to go out of their way to find these stories because it is made by people who understand this world um so i think people might be a little confused by it at first because the first episode is so bizarre i i watched it while i had a fever which is either the best or worst (laughs) way to do it i thought it was having some kind of fever dream uh but as it goes on, you get a little bit more used to the rhythm of the show. The show gets used to the rhythm of the show. And it's a really kind of unexpected pleasure in a way that I, I just wasn't expecting it to be what it was. I'm really interested in the idea that this feels like a show about ladybirds by <laughs> by, uh, by a driving creative force who's a woman. Because I would say if I had one critique of BoJack Horseman, a show mm-hmm. I like a lot, it is that it very neatly fits into the kind of universe of shows by and about kind of anti-heroic men that we have very many of, which these stories are interesting and deserve to be told, but they're not the only stories. And so it's interesting that this kind of visual creativity is being put towards a story that looks a little bit more deeply at other kinds of stories that are maybe less consistently told all the time on TV. Yeah, and I mean, I think BoJack tells that story in one of the most self-aware ways I've seen, but you're right, we've seen that story a lot. It's cool to see it told in a different way, but it's still the same kind of story. This is feels very different. One, I th- feel like the best way I can describe it is that it's kind of an animated bird version of like what would happen after the Broad City finale. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which, if you saw the Broad City finale, I mean, without spoiling everything, um, you know, it ends with them kind of accepting that they've gotten older and that they their lives are changing and figuring out the next stage of their friendship and that's very much what this show is so it feels like it kind of you know accidentally picks up where that leaves off and you know I'm super biased here I'm a 30 year old woman but yeah. um, I think it's really smart about it and I've never quite seen a show do that so to have it come in the form of this very uh, you know aggressively and purposefully weird bird cartoon is you know it's the kind of thing that we complain about peak TV a lot, but this is the kind of thing that would not happen if we didn't have as much room for TV shows as we do now. Yeah, this would not be airing on network television. Right. So speaking of network television... There we go. Decent transition. Thanks, yes. <laughs> Solid B. <laughs> uh, 
We are also going to talk about The Red Line, which you uh, reviewed for us, Dan. And this is a show that uh, is about a police shooting in Chicago and the ramifications of that and sort of the fallout of it and why it happened and so on. It's produced by Ava DuVernay. And it stars Noah Wiley, among other people. Mm-hmm. So that's, is this his first TV role in a long time? I feel like, it, yes. It is. I mean, he's worked on um, the librarian franchise mm, of mm-hmm. TV movies, I believe, on TNT. But this is kind of a real return to form uh, in in kind of the first big, meaty, solid way since ER. And I think that's a really interesting aspect of his casting, which is that they are trying to aim this in a very broad populist direction. Uh, Ava DuVernay and Greg Berlanti uh, produce, and I think a lot of the impulses here are Berlanti's for kind of bringing people into the tent. But Wiley also plays the gay adoptive father of a young woman of color whose husband, also a person of color, is shot in a police shooting. So this is not the Noah Wiley we remember in every particular. This is a story that is really complicated it for by the standards of cbs procedurals Mm. it follows the aftermath of a shooting uh from three different angles those of the family of the deceased uh led by wiley those of the uh officer and his family and the officer is played by noel fisher and those of uh local politician rising in the chicago municipal scene who intersects with both of these stories in ways that I won't spoil right now. And effectively, it really admirably avoids false equivalencies. At no point is it made out to be, for instance, that uh, the cop and the family of the deceased just have a misunderstanding that can be solved by coming together, which I think a lesser version of this show might have suggested. There are people who are in the right and people who are in the wrong, and the people who are in the right don't always act the right way and the people who are in the wrong are not purely evil but there are clearly defined moral stakes which is I think what DuVernay brings to the project Um, I really admired this I think that it's really cool and interesting that CBS which to my eye is the most risk averse of the four major broadcast networks is doing something this socially conscious and this well executed and that it's not a very special project that's kind of framed as something other than what they do typically. It is a police procedural. It is, it's squarely within what they do and what they do well enough to attract legions of fans. It's just has a bit of a twist to it that sets it apart from well-executed shows with less on their mind, like the NCISs yeah. of the world. It's also a limited series, right? Which is new for CBS. It It is, it is, rare for CBS. I can't think of another example of of a CBS. Especially on recent years. In recent years, yeah. It kind of brings to mind if network TV is going to do things like this, obviously it's less ambitious than, say, Roots or the Thornbirds, but, like, there was a time when people tuned into these eight-episode limited series on network that were able to tell stories with a beginning, middle, and satisfying end all over the course of a short period of time. And I think this does that. I think... I think it will be a shame if this doesn't find its audience because I think its power lies in the fact that it's kind of like popular art that it is pitched pretty broadly across the plate to bring people in. 
And now it just needs to do that. And hopefully the uh, marketing muscle of CBS and its lead-ins will have the opportunity to do that. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And if, you know, we have two very different shows on the plate for you, (laughs) but if neither of those appeal, there is always more TV where that comes from. Amazon's The Tick, currently in its second season, is the third TV iteration of the cult comic book hero. Joe Otterson talked with the character's creator, Ben Edlin. Hello, this is Joe Otterson, and I'm sitting here today with the one, the only, the very funny, the very well-dressed Mr. Ben Edlin. Cool. And that's it. I, I like your look, man. Thanks. I aspire to that look. Okay. Um, I'll <laughs> leave the sweater as I go. Uh, no, thanks, man. Yeah. I'll be here today to talk, of course, about The Tick Season 2, currently streaming on Amazon Prime. And I was wondering if you could tell me, um, given that this is the second season, what improvements have you made from Season 1 other than The Tick's snazzy new suit this year? Just general worker safety, less accidents per day, <laughs> less uh, loss of fingers. Like, we're very proud that we only lost... No. Um, uh, a lot of, like, evolutions that uh, happen naturally from a season one to season two, those sort of things. But, like, we were able to, I think, better understand what the show is supposed to be and what it's supposed to be trying to... How much it's trying to chew of the, like, the epic stuff and... We just got a better, I think, pace and a better uh, sense of our own balance. Mm-hmm. That's generic. <laughs> no, that was good. That was exactly what I was looking for. Oh, wow. Um, and then um, one thing I really liked about this season, I'm going to try to avoid spoilers as much as possible for anybody who hasn't seen the, the season yet. Right. Um, I really like the season that Dot really seems to come into her own this season. And then we also get some very interesting stuff uh, with lovely Miss Lint this yeah. season. Yep. And like I said, without giving as much away as we can, but if you do, it's, pro- it's probably fine. Um, so you can tell us about just kind of the evolution of those characters this year. Sure. Um I mean, with Dot, that was like a two-year plan that required a little bit of dormancy on the character's part in the first year, because uh, it was her story is the story of, oh no, I was born a third-tier character. I am the token female. Oh no, I'm the sister of the hero, and I'm the handmaiden to the warrior or something. And those sort of tropes are uh, remarkably powerful. They have a lot of strong... uh, resistance to sort of change because first I mean like they were invisible for a long time it just was the way of things but Mm -hmm. then as we were developing the show I realized it was partly in a long ongoing conversation with Val Curry who plays Dodd Mm -hmm. but like um, when I first talked to her about this character it was that she was going to have her uh, her pain is sort of on uh, ice because she, uh, her brother suffered such great trauma right in front of the world and it was so evident that he was the one who needed caring that her whole personhood kind of wrapped around the idea of caring for others and she never got to examine her own trauma. That turned into um, the second season where Arthur's now gone on his hero's journey. She now uh, sort of all that stuff thaws out and she's not like necessarily 100% a... uh, She's definitely not at 100% stable, and she's dealing with a lot of powerful emotions. So it's kind of interesting to watch her because she's she's no longer this veneer of perfection and, like, look to me for normalcy, Arthur. She goes through an arc of real searching and sort of violence and rebellion and a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And then Miss Lint um, is sort of... To me... 
kind of a it's it's our way of telling the story of just a, like a superb she's excellent and she should be at the top of whatever game she plays but she's just been dealing with uh guys <laughs> for a long time and like uh you know so this is the season where she kind of figures out like her plans come from her she's no longer following anybody else's uh sort of nonsense and um she really becomes an entrepreneurial entrepreneurial center of action mm-hmm. which is fun and then of course in season one we have that great tease about uh, you know the Aegis is going to be making an appearance yeah. coming up here, and so um, they play a very big role in season two. And so could you tell us a bit about the role that the, the agency plays then? It's um, a lot. Uh, I mean, we wanted to do a lot of world building in season two because season one was very for a show like The Ticket was actually remarkably myopic and centered around Arthur and his sort of slowly expanding world. That was intentional to sort of get people invested in the characters, but then. Season two world building, we wanted to, I don't know, I mean, like, a lot of this is, like, the engineering of how do you maintain a superhero comedy or any superhero story. Arthur and the Tick needed a workplace terrain. And um, luckily, we were already building into the world this idea of superhero regulation because that's a, it's a superhero trope, comes from more than one universe. Um but uh, it's the fun of like playing with government intersecting with the phenomenon of superhero metahumans, what have you. That we we really like, and we got full on into it, and it was wildly rewarding because we got to play with the the fun shiny side of it that Arthur really enjoys, and somewhat more sinister side of it that a character like Overkill or Dot learns to sort of see in Aegis. It's sort of uh, everything to everyone. And that was really cool. Mm-hmm. And so um, I've been a big fan of The Tick for a very long time growing up. I watched the cartoon series. I was a very big fan of the Patrick Warburton mm-hmm. live-action series. Um, and now this one, I, I was really blown away by just how perfect some of these castings are. I mean, you know, Griffin Newman as Arthur, you know, yeah. Peter And then, of, uh, of course, you can't really beat having Alan Tudyk as a boat. Nope. Which I didn't see <laughs> no, coming, which no. really made me laugh. He was He's amazing. Yeah. yeah, and he was really wonderful to come back in the second season because we, we didn't have... We turned out to not have enough money for him because he's all sparkly and cool. Um, <laughs> but he, uh, you know, I mean, we had enough money, but like not really. He should get more, but he's so great that he just, you know, wants to be Danger Boat. And <laughs> like, and we had a really wonderful. He's amazing in this season, and there's a oh, lot yeah. of emotion in this boat. There's yeah. a lot of uh, <laughs> trauma. Everyone's got so much trauma. I know the the boat with very deep seated emotional issues that yeah. uh, get explored very very deeply. Oh, horrific nut of tragedy in that boat's past. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, but so just give, given the, the many different iterations that this character and this world has had, you know, starting with, with the comic books and now up to today, especially as it relates to season two of the show, how do you think um, the character in this world has evolved as you've lived with it now for so long? Um. <clears throat> well, I mean. You could almost do one of those, probably now, somewhat not quite. It doesn't quite work because of the lateral development of the hominids. But that idea of the, you know, the like slowly erect, you know, walking, <laughs> that sort of evolution is actually, you know, um, uh, really has happened. Because the earliest sort of tick was furry. 
mm-hmm. and uh, only really spoke high school French and was very uh, like feral and weird and um, and then that was like the newsletter version that's 30 years old 33 years old now or something but like uh, uh, it's really he's he came into a very clear lens toward the end of the comic book series and very much in the comic in the cartoon of being a tremendously upbeat loving force for good mm-hmm. and and um, his sort of connection with these ideas of destiny and justice and this personification um, of these sort of uh, virtues um, have melded into a real belief system he has which went from being kind of like the only shimmers of it you would see in the cartoon and in the live action from the early 2000s were sort of like little glints that were non-sequitur tangents but he has now started to kind of speak more clearly about what destiny is supposed to do and and those sort of things come in part from a deepening on my part of understanding the hell I was talking about ever. Uh, and yeah, I'm really happy with where that's gone. He's he's almost too coherent, but just <laughs> but that like, you know, he'll back away. He'll get dumb again. Anyway. But- I was going to say, too, that, that reference to uh, hominids, there was, I can probably safely say, it's the first hominid reference we've had on this podcast, so thank you oh, for that. Oh, make, yeah, we, can go, we can veer straight into that area. Do, well, we'll, we'll save that for of, the next one. Yeah, oh, okay. Before you really deep into <laughs> the hominid stuff. <laughs> um, uh, Denisovian is big news, right? Let's, okay. Let's, you lost, yeah, you already lost me. I, was about <laughs> like, yeah, I exhausted my entire knowledge of hominids <laughs> with that last comment. Hominid, hominid. <laughs> but... Um, but just given, uh, like you said, like the evolution of the character as you've come to understand it then, um, given, you know, obviously superheroes have been very popular for a very long time, but especially now in the last decade or so with the rise of, you know, Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe with the DC Universe, all these things kind of coming um, into onto the screen really well for the first time, um, how much has that environment influenced your perspective on this character, if at all? A lot. Um, it it first of all had a lot to do with why the tick came back because that sort of level of superhero saturation, this level of the culture, kind of just being riddled with it. Um, it creates a much more educated group of people for just the the jokes, but it also it's like what's going on. So what's going on? The tick comes back, and that investigation is part of the meta level of what the tick's up to. But it all of this is, I think, highly. I mean, it. it so this amount of uh, you know superhero uh, activity in the culture is begs the question: well, why? And um, it makes me feel like we're looking at the superheroes in a different way, which is sort of in the way of we went from wish fulfillment to some kind of like this is now more like dealing with the nightmare of our own potential, like uh, chewing the angst of our godlike powers and our effect on our own present. Because we haven't yet figured out how to settle the continent we made out of plastic. 
which is floating out there. Well, maybe like it's like Lex Luthor, like we did one, right? And we didn't even mean to do it. We just crapped that out of the UFO we call human civilization, right? So like, anyway, so that went a little, talk about non sequitur. Um, <laughs> anyway, so superheroes are wildly interesting to me because they have caught on like hotcakes and that means something. So it infuses everything we do, I think, with added charge and meaning. Um, uh, it, it, I don't think I'd be doing this show if we were on the other side of that saturation looking at it ta- tapering off three years ago. It's like uh, it still means something and still a, a relevant conversation. Then we happen to make characters that I really love now, and it's a story, and I no longer care what fabric we're in because we also have this great story we want to tell. Um, but the side that is a commentary is well fed, like it's just a big fat tick. <laughs> yeah. And then um, one thing I really like this season: uh, Overkill has this line where he says, "In order to be a superhero, you have to be you have to be somewhat tweaked." I believe is how he yeah. describes it. And I'm just wondering: Do you feel the same way about uh, comic book creators? Um, I mean, <laughs> sure. I, like technically, he is a vigilante, and he views that as sort of in anti-hero sort of cousinhood to superhero. Um, but, yeah, uh, I would say that also superheroes have to be tweaked. All of them are outsider, weirdo, kind of non... First of all, like, to be a... To even take heroic action, one of the things we praise in heroic action is actually a transgressive... Who's going to break all of the barriers society has laid and rush to the car and just go, fuck, it's not my car. It's not, I'm going to open the door. I'm going to pull this person out. I'm going to not worry about, like, uh, ramifications of spinal damage and liability. I'm just going to, there's possibility of fire. We're going to do this, right? Lots of transgressions people can't quite grapple with necessarily. That's the lowest tier of heroic action premeditated, ongoing, mission-based heroic action is very close to criminal idea. Like, it's, it's almost fascism. It's like, this is what I say. We're going to do this. I'm going to be the law in this moment because there's no other place. No one else is doing it. Or I decide that this law is better than the other laws. My law, right? So it is, um, there's a tweakness. And then when it comes to comic book creators... Um, uh, you know, we, a, a completely generic story with no variations from uh, what has come before, is, I, yeah, maybe it works, but usually it's something about the signal coming from an individual that makes something compelling to other individuals. Um, specific to comic books, that's maybe less so now but it's always been an outsider medium it's been a marginalized a place where people go to escape it's a place where uh, it's just got a sort of I mean the word geek used to mean a little bit different (laughs) things but it's you know uh, there's a there is a, a, a communication to the isolated that used to be and still remains part of what it is to be a comic book creator, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I was, and I know I subsisted on communications from other people through that medium, going, oh, there's like minds, and it's a form of nutrition. I'm getting through this work that leads me to understand that. Okay. 
And then uh, finally, if you yourself were a denizen of the city, do you think you would be a superhero or a supervillain? Oh, I'd be a um, superhero, uh, I think. <laughs> On a good I would day. be Ravenclaw, man. That'd be really cool. I'm telling you. Um, uh, no, that's the one nobody talks about. Either. I'm glad you said Ravenclaw. Whatever no talks about that. One. They're the smart ones, right? Yeah. They don't. And they don't dick around like Slytherin. No. And they don't have that hero complex of the um, the Gryffindor. The Gryffindors. I like think they're dopey. so cool. Yeah, they're kind of dopey, like Hufflepuffs. No, so well, you, you, I mean, God help the Hufflepuffs. <laughs> Anyway, the herbalists, I guess, right? That's usually what... Anyway, so... Um, did not expect this conversation if you were in Harry Potter. I didn't... So it did. Oh, good. Okay, yeah. good. Then... And done. Um, uh, no, I would... Uh, I, I believe that um, I would be a superhero, you know? Uh, this, and, and I would be a, uh, a, a pretty ridiculous one. I'm not sure what it would be. Um... I mean, or, I mean, that would be only if I had powers, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I'd have to be having a power. I would not be like Arthur going, oh, I got to do it. I got to be a hero. You I think. think no, I would be um, a bystander. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be working on something else. Anyway. All right. Very good. Well, Mr. Edwin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for yeah. being here today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Craig Mazin of HBO's Chernobyl.